Quite a while back, uh, a friend asked me a question. How do you handle criticism? I said, not very well. (laughs) And then when I got serious, I began to explain to him the very steps that I try to take. You notice I said I try to take. In dealing with criticism and critics, because they're not the same. Criticism is not the same as the critics. The first thing you have to understand, that whenever you take a stand for the truth, whenever you do something, you will be criticized. It's just inevitable. The only people who don't get criticized are the ones who do nothing, say nothing, accomplish nothing. But if you are doing anything for the Lord at all, you will be criticized. It goes with the territory. Secondly, as I classify your critics, <laughs> uh, classify criticism, examine the source. Thirdly, as you turn your critics into coaches, ask your critic, well, how can I do this better? Instead of just criticizing, so tell them, help me, help me out so I can do it better. Because sometimes faithful critics can be of enormous help to you. But a habitual critic, on the other hand, is not of much help. I was thinking of this, and I was thought of D.L. Moody, who had a, a woman who was really very critical of him. Everywhere, every turn, she was critical of him. And one day she walked up to him and she said, Mr. Moody, I don't like the way you do evangelism. He said, well, I don't like it either. Tell me, how do you do it? <laughs> she said, I don't. He said, well, I prefer the way of my doing it than you not doing it. You see, most critics feel that they have superior knowledge, so give them a hearing. Listen to what they have to say. The fourth step is not to take criticism personally. I know that's easier said than done, but it's important because some criticism should not be even tolerated. Let me quote you what far wiser man said. He said, criticism is often difficult to accept. But enduring abuse is wrong. God's work is not advanced by acquiescing to an abusive critic or attack on your personhood. End of quote. I love what General Patton said. He said, if you're afraid of criticism, you are whipped before you started. (laughs) And when you remember that they criticize the Lord of life, they criticize the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless, eternal Son of God, How are we going to escape criticism when we take a stand for the truth or we try to accomplish something for God? And Paul himself faced so many critics. Literally, in every church he had critics. In fact, there were a special group of people, legalist, loveless, mean, critical people known as the Judaizers, And they literally were nipping at his heels everywhere he went. And um, they were teaching that basically the gospel is not enough. Salvation is not by grace alone or faith alone. But you have to be circumcised or you have to keep the law. You have to do this and you have to do that. And you have to do the other thing in order to become a super-duper Christian. In Thessalonica, they did the same thing. Paul is dealing with that issue, but before he gets to that issue of the end times, which we will see, he starts by talking about the ten things that we saw in the last message about the Christian life. 
And so we began in the last message, and I explained that after three weeks of preaching in Thessalonica, the Apostle Paul was so persecuted, and his life was in danger that they literally had to whiz him out of town only after spending three weeks when he really wanted to spend more time with them. In fact, he was heartbroken that he could not spend longer time with them because they ran him out of town very quickly. And guess what these miserable critics, these critical people did as a result of what happened? I mean, they took full advantage of Paul's sudden departure and disappearance. Uh, They saw it as a great opportunity to undermine his authority, to undermine his preaching, but above all, they took it as an opportunity to undermine the gospel. And so they launched this malicious smear campaign. But these miserable folks who started nothing founded nothing, led no one to Christ, and they the ones going around criticizing the Apostle Paul, the great apostle. I mean, these folks would not hold a candle to the great apostle who had absolute commitment to the truth of the gospel. But they came to slander the Apostle Paul. I can only imagine how they went about it. Well, he ran away, didn't he? He uh, has not been seen or heard from since, obviously. He's not sincere. He's one of those fly-by-night preachers. He probably is a charlatan. He didn't care about you. He only cared about himself. He got out when the getting out was good. He's abandoned you, hasn't he? He's more concerned about saving his own skin than saving you, Thessalonians. And it appears from the text that some of the weak-kneed Thessalonians bought into this critical and the false criticism. After all, those critics just sounded so plausible, very plausible. Make no mistake about it, the Apostle Paul found that to be very painful. Because some people think, well, you know, he's a great Apostle Paul. He had a rhinoceros hide, and these things did not affect him. Not in your life. You say, Michael, how do you know that? Well, by spending one whole chapter out of the five in trying to explain himself, defend himself. Listen, you have to have ice in your veins not to feel hurt and pain of criticism, especially if it's a false criticism. And there is no doubt that Paul was comforted by the fact of knowing that his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, was called glutton, he was called a wine-bibber, he was called lawbreaker, he was called seditious, he was called uh, in league with Satan, he was even called a mad. Now, please hear me right. This is important, because evil will always call good evil for two reasons. Number one, to divert attention from their wickedness, and secondly, to confuse some of the non-discerning people, just to confuse them. In our day, wicked sinners will always accuse those who are faithful to the truth by the worst sin that our society can ever level on anyone. You got it? Intolerant. Intolerant. And so, when the Apostle Paul responds to their criticism, he does not do it arrogantly. He does not do it in anger. He does not do it, you know, for vanity's sake. No. 
He does it because he knew that the very gospel itself is at stake. And if they manage to destroy his credibility, and if they manage to destroy his message and his preaching, next step will be to destroy the gospel. And he would not do it. But he responded positively. I love to see people who respond to criticism positively. In fact, I read about the guy who was being criticized all the time by his boss. But this guy, this employee, is very positive. And one day the the boss said to him, he said, I don't understand how can you make that many mistakes in one day? And the positive employee said, that's because I get up early in the morning. (laughs) I love that. And the Apostle Paul defended his conduct in verses 1 to 16 of chapter 2. He said, you brothers know that our visit to you was not a failure. You saw the fruit of our labor. We had previously suffered and have been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you the gospel, His gospel, in spite of strong opposition. What is Paul saying? Listen carefully. He is saying both preaching and our lives were transparent from the very beginning. And you saw that. We never sugarcoated the message. We never tried to trick you. We've never tried to give some fine prints. What you saw is what you got. (laughs) Uh, You saw how we hated hypocrisy and loved integrity. We had nothing to conceal or to be ashamed of. Paul is saying, I was not, I am not, and I will not be afraid of suffering. In Philippi, We got beaten real good, as we say right here in the South. (laughs) I mean, we were bleeding from every pore. But there in the prison, we sang songs and we praised the Lord. And that did not stop us in the middle of our suffering to praise the name of the Lord. And the Lord, in response to our praise, sent an earthquake and shook the prison. And even the guard came to Christ and was converted in his household. After all of that, all the suffering did not deter us from preaching the truth. Nothing will stop us from preaching the truth. Their intimidation did not lead us to compromise. Their attack did not cause us to soften the message. Their hatred made us more fearless, bold, and courageous. When you are committed to the truth, they will come after you with cleats. They will. Be prepared for it. But at the same time, you will experience the power of God and the comfort of God and the strength of God like no other time in your life. You see, opposition will always come when you rely only on the power of God. Opposition will always come when you seek to please Him alone, first and foremost, not please people. That will always come. And that is why a person who is transparent, is not afraid of accountability. And Paul was so consumed with pleasing the Lord, the Lord who is the true examiner of motives, the Lord who is the true examiner of inner thoughts, the Lord who is the true examiner of hearts and minds, that he did not worry or fear being examined by the faithful believers. See, the enemies will shoot at you no matter what. But they will. But as long as faithful brothers and sisters in Christ know the truth, that's all that really mattered to the Apostle Paul. 
In fact, Paul uses form that represents his life. And I pray that God will use those to represent our lives, each of us individually and corporately. First, he saw himself as a steward, not an owner. Verses 3 and 4. Secondly, he was nurturing like a mother. Verses 5 to 8. Thirdly, he was instructive as a father. Verses 9 to 12. And fourthly, he was as clear as a herald. Verses 13 to 16. Paul saw the ministry and everything else in life as a stewardship. It's a trusteeship. He did not own anything. He was a manager. That's all he was. Those of you who work for bosses, you work for companies that are owned by an individual, listen very carefully. This is what a manager does, and that's what Paul is saying here. Managers don't go to business for themselves. Managers report to the owner of the business. Uh, They follow the owner's instructions. They follow the owner's plan. They follow the owner's goals. They always want to be sure that they are following the owner's will. They were always anxious to be accurately communicating the owner's desires and wishes. Faithful managers do not allow pride or greed or popularity or impure motives to take them away from the owner's instructions. And Paul is saying that is exactly why his message was true to God's instructions. Because he was not preaching his message, he was preaching the gospel. His motives were pure toward God and toward them. His method was open and above board. As faithful steward, he had to do that all of the time. Listen to me. This is not just one-time faithfulness. This is faithfulness as a steward day in and day out. Day in and day out. You'll say, why? Because the temptation always, always for us to go into business for ourselves. The temptation is always to do your thing and not follow the owner's manual. Uh, Some People consider faithfulness and the stewardship of money is they say, I give 10%, then I do whatever I want with the 90%. But true stewards know that God is just as interested in what you do with the 90% as you do with the 10. That's faithful stewardship. It is a whole package. And stewardship is not only in finances. Stewardship is in the use of time. Stewardship in speaking of the truth. Stewardship is in living by the truth. Stewardship is in witnessing to the truth. Stewardship is in knowing that you are reporting to the boss moment by moment, day by day. And so Paul was not only a steward, a manager, who was entrusted with the truth of the gospel, but secondly, he said, he was nurturing as a mother would be. I don't have to tell you, The faithful mothers would never exploit their children. A faithful mother would never use her motherhood for selfish ends. You will never see it. A faithful mother never misleads her children. A faithful mother, on the contrary, she's nurturing. She's self-sacrificing. She's gentle. She's affectionate. And Paul is saying that he and his team were faithful not only to share the truth of the gospel, but to share their own lives with them. 
Like the faithful mother, they unselfishly set aside their own needs for the needs of God's people. Not only he was a faithful steward, not only that he was nurturing like a mother, but thirdly, he was instructive and corrective as a father would be. Godly fathers instruct their children. That's just the way God laid it and God planned it. They are to instruct them in the Word of God, first and foremost. Fathers, do all of the sports stuff with your kids. Do all of the outdoorsy stuff. Do all the good stuff. But above all, fathers are the primary instructors to their children in the Word of God. And that is why in Deuteronomy, God said to the fathers... He said, you teach God's law to your children when they're walking and when they're sitting, when they're going and when they're coming, every opportunity you get to instruct your children in the Word of God. Effective Christian fathers are those who strengthen their children's convictions, those who give courage for their children to stand for the truth, they train them to uphold biblical standards. Above all, godly fathers lead by example. Godly fathers are to say to their children, watch and see how I live. Watch and see how I react. Watch and see how I walk with God. Watch and see how I exercise wisdom. Watch and see how I testify to the Lord Jesus Christ and my salvation. Watch and see how I am not ashamed of the gospel. Watch and see how I try to live above reproach. But More importantly, watch and see how when I fail and falter and sin, repent and turn to the Lord for forgiveness and healing. By using the image of the Father, Paul is saying that it's not enough to just be compassionate and tender and caring as a spiritual mother, but need to live uncompromisingly pure and exemplary lives as spiritual fathers. We need to teach the truth. We need to display courage in the midst of adversity. We need to build the saints in wisdom. In the light of severe criticism by false teachers, the Apostle Paul said that he lived among them as a steward. He lived among them as a nurturing mother, instructive as a father, and fourthly, he was as clear as a bell. He was as clear as a herald. Perhaps this fourth one is the most freeing aspect of your witness for Jesus Christ. It is the most liberating thing. It is the most freeing concept in witnessing for Christ. A lot of people never witness for Christ. Some of you do it on few occasions because you feel that burden. But here it says, that is not your responsibility. You are a mere announcer. You are a herald. You are just a communicator of the news. I know how doctors feel the incredible burden in their profession. Why? Because they know that the patient's eye looking to them for healing. But the godly doctors I know in this place know the only God heals. But that's not what the patient is doing. And, and they feel that burden. Even an engineer feels incredible responsibility in designing a building or an engine because the product is dependent on them completely. But the one thing about the herald in the Scripture is that the onus is on God. All that he or she is responsible for is to clearly announce the news and the burden where it's on God. Paul 
faithfully announced the good news of the gospel, and God did the rest. God gave the fruit, and God gave the effectiveness which is going on in that church even though He has been away from them for a long time. It was not Paul who was effective. It was the Word of God. It was not the announcer who has the power, but the Holy Spirit. It was not the clearness of the speaker, but it's the power of God. And so, we know instinctively that sometimes even in the announcing of the good news, there's hostility. We know that. I mean, you should expect it. Some will respond, and that's wonderful. And as I said in the last message, heaven is rejoicing. But other times, there's hostility. Paul is saying, verse 14, he said, there's hostility from Jews, hostility from Gentiles. And let me tell you something. Hostility is never fun. I mean, I, I don't know anybody who was a, who was a masochistic who was thinking, oh, goody, I'm facing hostility today. <laughs> and this hostility is not so much as some people misunderstood it and thought it's a racial prejudice. It has nothing to do with race. It has to do with religious prejudice. A.W. Tozer said, Popular Judaism slew the prophets and crucified Christ. Popular Christianity killed the Reformers, jailed the Quakers, denounced John Wesley, and threw him on the streets. To stand by the truth of God against the current religious vogue is always unpopular and may be downright dangerous. Beloved, listen to me. So many modern-day preachers today, like I have not seen in my lifetime, are craving for popularity. They are literally scrambling to being accepted by the secular media. And the sad part is that they are totally blind to the spiritual decline in our nation. Remember this. Festus called Paul a madman. The Pope said of Martin Luther that he should be in Bedlam. Heretics called Bishop Athanasius madman. All of England laughed at the folly of John Wesley. Most people called William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, insane. But no matter what they call us, the Apostle Paul is teaching us to be faithful stewards, to be nurturing, to be instructive, and to be heralds. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org. 